Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 10. (coughs) Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Once a fellow dressed as the devil was on his way to a Halloween party. When it started to rain, this man ducked for cover. He slipped into a nearby church, and he walked in right as the service was already in progress. When the church members turned around and saw the devil at the door, they became frightened. They started to flee. One lady got her coat caught on the communion cup holder and couldn't shake loose. Well, as the devil walked down the aisle, this woman started to tremble. He was just a few feet away when she blurted out, Satan, I've come to this church for 20 years, but I want you to know I've been on your side the whole time. I'm assuming that you are on the right side. That is the Lord's side. But we all should be reminded that sides need to be taken. For when you become a Christian, you enter a battle. There is a spiritual war waging around us. Understand, when Jesus became your friend, Satan became your enemy. As one preacher put it, if you're sinking in quicksand, Satan will gladly pat you on the back of the head. His goal is to rip you off, burn you out, drag you down, and burglarize your blessings. John chapter 10, verse 10, warns us of Satan's intent. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. Realize you can't duck the devil or hope he ignores you and never singles you out. He hates you and he's out to get you. You might not be looking for a fight, but Satan is a bully. And you'll have to face him whether you want to or not. That's why we need to learn to overcome. And that's Paul's intent here in Ephesians chapter 6. He outlines a threefold battle plan. First, he helps us to understand our adversary. Second, he encourages us then to strap on our armor. And third, he readies us with our arsenal. Our adversary, our armor, and our arsenal. Guys, the Christian life is not a playground It's a battleground, and God wants us standing strong. Well, first, Paul identifies our adversary. 
You know, often we think the enemy we're fighting is the person we see. The secular media, or the pornographer, or the drug pusher, or the abortionist, or the atheist, or the bully at school, or the angry neighbor, or the vindictive boss. But not so. Our real enemy is spiritual wickedness. As Paul says in verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Our ultimate enemy is the devil and his demonic henchmen. They were once angels until pride filled their hearts. Isaiah 14 describes their fall from heaven. And Satan is now angry. He's envious. He hates all that God holds dear. And that's what puts you and I in his line of fire. Now that we're God's children, we now have become Satan's target. Our adversary is the devil and his demons. And in our dealings with the devil, we're prone to make two mistakes. Some Christians underestimate him, while other Christians overestimate him. Satan loves it when we underestimate him, when we brush him off as some little imp in red leotards with horns and tail and hooves and pitchfork. Nothing pleases the devil more than to be conveyed as a comic strip character. In fact, Satan's greatest achievement is convincing so many people that he doesn't exist. Research shows that 62% of Americans today believe that Satan is not a living being, but just a symbol of evil. Yet when I look at the horrible wickedness in the world today, it's obvious to me that there has to be a devil. One pastor remarked, if you don't believe in the devil, try working for the Lord for a while. And it's true. Don't underestimate the devil. He's ruthless and rabid. He has no morals or principles. His evil is beyond imagination, and he is extremely experienced. He's been working his mischief since the Garden of Eden. But neither should we over excuse me, neither should we overestimate the devil. For Satan is not God's equal. The devil is a created being. He is infinitely inferior to his creator. Realize, too, Satan's reach and power are limited by the will of God. In the story of Job, he's not allowed to harm a single hair on Job's head without gaining God's permission. You remember when Moses threw down his rod, it turned into a snake. Of course, the magicians of Egypt were able to do likewise. But that's when Moses' serpent swallowed up their serpents. In other words, Satan had power, but God had far more power. This is why 1 John 4 verse 4, the apostle writes to the church, He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. In fact, often Satan is used by God to accomplish his purposes. Satan is a pawn in the hand of God. He's a stooge. Tertullian called the devil God's ape. This is why we know it's impossible for a believer in Jesus to be demon-possessed. 1 John 5, verse 18 teaches us, We know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. Literally, the Greek reads, The wicked one cannot attach himself. A Christian can be oppressed by the devil, but never possessed. Satan can hassle and hinder us, but he can't inhabit us. Trust me, Jesus is not into timeshares with the devil. 
You know, many Christians these days give the devil far too much credit. Supposedly everything is the result of some demon. Loneliness, fear, lust, all gets blamed on the devil. I read of one preacher, he had a list. He talked about the demon of junk food, the demon of excessive talking, the demon of sunbathing, the demon of warts, the demon of disco fever. This is back from the 70s, by the way. (laughs) The demon of trying to be cool, the demon of spending sprees, the demon of food gulping, and the demon of baldness. Give me a break. Oh, it's much easier just to blame these things on the devil than it is on the weakness of our flesh or even our own sin. But most of our problems are of our own making. Satan can't be credited with everything. Satan is no mini-God. He has none of God's attributes. He's no threat to God. And that's why when we encounter Satan, we're told, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Face the devil on your own, and you're no match. You remember Martin Luther said, For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. It is true. But resist the devil in Jesus' name. Be strong in the Lord, and the devil will be forced to flee. Colossians 2 verse 15 along with a host of other scriptures, tell us that on the cross, Jesus destroyed Satan and his allies. The devil still launches a skirmish where and when he can, but he is a defeated foe, thanks to Jesus. This is why when a Christian confronts Satan, we never fight for victory, we always fight from victory. We rely on the victory won by Jesus Christ. You remember Jude 9? When Michael, the archangel, wrestled with Satan over the body of Moses, rather than ranting and raving and name-calling, Michael said simply, the Lord rebuke you. You see, Michael kept the Lord Jesus between him and Satan, and he won the battle. He was strong in the Lord, and Paul wants us to be the same. When you stand against the devil in the strength of the Lord, the devil backs down. He realizes he's no match for us. But this helps to shape his tactics. Since his bold and blatant maneuvers drive us to the Lord, where we gain more strength, Satan prefers not the frontal, but the subtle assault. See, he has ways to slip up behind us, to cut us off from our spiritual supply line. The devil's only hope is to distract us from the Lord, to weaken our faith, to get us too busy to pray. All too often, persecution and sickness and calamity, the frontal assaults, only drive us to the Lord. Satan works to create the opposite effect. He wants us to forget and neglect the Lord. You know, when the big bad wolf couldn't blow down the house, he didn't give up, did he? He ate bacon for breakfast because he slid down the chimney. The wolf resorted to tricks and schemes, and this is Satan's strategy. Verse 11 alerts us to the wiles of the devil. Rather than obvious opposition, Satan favors deception. John 8, verse 44, Jesus called the devil the father of lies. You remember Paul warned the Corinthians that he often presents himself as an angel of light. 
He appears in pleasing shapes. And two, Satan loves to use fear. You remember 1 Peter, I'm sorry, 5 verse 8, calls the devil a roaring lion. I've heard that in the jungle, the roaring lion is the older lion. He's the lion that's lost his teeth, but he still knows how to sound vicious. The roaring lion jumps in front of little Bambi as she strolls down the path. He strikes fear in the deer. She retreats the opposite direction right into the teeth of the young lions. And Satan is like this roaring lion. He uses fear and intimidation to manipulate us. Satan is harmless if we refuse to be afraid and take a stand against him. This is what Paul tells us to do here. Notice the devil also uses dissension. The mere word devil means slanderer. And he seeks to stir up bitterness and ill will between church members and family members. Condemnation is also his tool. Revelation 12 verse 10 refers to Satan as the accuser of the brethren. Satan loves to bury you and I under guilt and remind us of how unworthy we are to receive God's favor. Hey, when Satan does that, whenever Satan reminds you of your past, you remind him of his future. There's no condemnation for those of us that are in Christ. And lastly, Satan uses compromise. It reminds me of the hunter and the grizzly. The hunter was about to pull the trigger when suddenly the bear asked if they could talk. Well, the grizzly asked the hunter what he wanted out of the situation. The hunter replied, well, I want a fur coat. The bear said he wanted a full stomach. So they compromised. And both got what they wanted, yet in the end it didn't work out so well for the hunter. And this is what happens when you compromise with Satan. You lose. Billy Graham once said, the devil is a good devil. And he's right. He's good at what he does. He's tricky and skilled and creative and persistent and ruthless. That's why we're warned against the wiles of the devil. And because Satan's assaults are more subtle than they are frontal, you and I need special protection. And God is exactly what we need. Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Hey, before you get it on with the devil, you and I need to strap on God's armor. Now remember, Paul wrote to the Ephesians from a Roman prison cell. And he was accompanied by a Roman soldier. And Paul was able to eyeball the soldier and note his protective armor. He then used the pieces of the legionnaire's gear as an analogy of the spiritual armor that God has given to us. And Paul lists five pieces of spiritual armor that you and I need to strap on if we're to counter the wiles of the devil. He talks about a belt, a breastplate, sandals, a shield, and a helmet. Verse 14 mentions the belt of truth. The belt worn by the Roman soldier was a wide, thick leather strap that wrapped around his abdomen. 
In ancient times, people believed the body's abdominal area was the seat of their emotions. We still talk about gut feelings, don't we? Intestinal fortitude. We even talk, a nervous person might say their stomach's full of butterflies. When a soldier readies himself for combat, his first step was to buckle and tighten his belt. And this should be our first step. Satan loves to move in the realm of feeling. He loves to play pinball with our hormones. He exploits our sensitivities and our insecurities. It's amazing how our feelings fluctuate, don't they? The highs and the lows, the ebbs and the flows can be dramatic. I think often Satan toys with our emotions. It always blows my mind how I can go from feeling funky to being in a funk in just a matter of hours. Satan can suggest to us, how can you really be a Christian? You're so bummed out. You're not joyous. What's so wrong with you? You must not be a Christian after all. He can play on our feelings. The first lesson every Christian needs to learn is that our faith is based on facts, not feeling. Buckle up that belt of truth. I'm not a Christian because I feel like one. I'm a child of God because He promised that if I gave my all to Jesus, He would make me one. I have a promise, not just feelings. The way to get a grip on your emotions is to tighten up the belt of truth. Tie your life to God's Word, not to mere fickle emotions. When your mood differs from the Scripture, believe the Word and manage your mood. Here's a great poem. Listen carefully now. Three men were walking on a wall. Feeling, faith, and fact. When feeling took an awful fall, then faith was taken back. So close was faith to feeling that he stumbled and fell too. But fact remained and pulled faith back. And faith brought feeling too. You see, feelings will often follow faith. But when you let the feelings lead, you're asking for trouble. Base your faith on God's truth, on the facts. You can counter Satan's attacks by tightening up the belt of truth. Verse 14 also lists the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate was a single sheet of metal that covered the upper upper torso. It protected a vital organ. It protected your heart. And just as the ancients associated the abdomen with a person's feelings or emotions The heart was viewed as the seat of our desires. Even today, when we say, put your heart into it, we're saying, show some desire. If you're a Christian, you're well aware of the changes that God has worked in your heart. You know, when a person comes to Christ, they receive a new heart. God takes away the old desires and He replaces them with new desires. When I came to Jesus, my want-tos changed. I'm far from perfect, but since coming to Jesus, God has given me a love for Him and a love for others. I now want to walk with God and please Him. I couldn't say that before. Jesus has changed my want-tos. But as I warned, Satan is slippery. He doesn't play by the rules. 
He ignores your want-tos and he reminds you of your used-tos and your once-dids and your still-cans. The devil loves to inflame old passions and reactivate latent lusts. You're excited about going to church tonight. When out of the blue, a former friend shows up with a 12-pack of beer under his arm looking to party. Your old boyfriend happens to be in town and calls you the very day after you got in a fight with your husband. Satan is sneaky. He plays on our old desires. And he conjures up temptations that you thought were forgotten. How do I counter Satan when he tries to lasso my heart and pull it away from God? I need to protect and cover my heart under a breastplate of righteousness. Jesus made me right with God. He did the same for you. We need to believe that his blood did what millions of sacrifices failed to do. It's now up to you and me to see ourselves in Christ and live like it. I've got to believe that I belong to God, that I'm truly His child. If I believe, my want-tos won't fade. But if I doubt my relationship with God, old friends in that old life might lure me away. Used-tos will have an appeal. Seeing myself right with God, standing in His righteousness, protects my heart. And then verse 15 mentions the sandals of peace. See, the Roman soldier wore the ancient equivalent of football cleats, half boots with leather straps. The bottoms were studded, and the hobnails provided traction on slippery surfaces and stability on rocky terrain. Realize a soldier's footwear was strategic. He could survive if his belt or if his breastplate were a little loose. But if a soldier couldn't keep his footing, the enemy could knock him off balance and then thrust him through with a sword. And this is Satan's strategy toward you and I. He loves to knock us off balance and confuse our faith. See, if he can trip you up, if he can cause you to stumble, then he can go in for the kill. Here's how it works. You're cruising through life. You're doing great, man. When someone asks you a question, you can't answer. It's a point perhaps you've never considered. It throws you for a loop, and you begin to doubt. Or perhaps it's not a question you can't answer, but a situation you can't explain. You pray for a reason, and the heavens remain silent. You start to question whether God is in control, if He's really wise and knows all things, if He loves you after all. Satan has so many ways to knock us off our stride and set us up for the kill. How do we defend ourselves? By lacing up the sandals of peace. When the path gets slippery or shaky, it is the peace of God that steadies us. See, all the unanswered questions can never deny the peace of God that rules in our hearts. Many years ago, Blaise Pascal spoke of this peace when he stated, The heart has reasons that reason knows nothing about. It's the peace of God that rules in our hearts. John Corson is a friend of mine. He's a pastor in Applegate, Oregon. Years ago, John's daughter went to be with Jesus in an automobile accident. 
At the memorial service, John testified of the tremendous peace of God that he had received. He said when he trusted God, this amazing peace ruled over his heart. But when he tried to make sense of his daughter's death, God's peace vanished. Suddenly it dawned on John. The Bible calls it the peace that passes all understanding. In his search for understanding, he sacrificed God's peace. And John realized that there are times in life when you can't have both. When understanding and peace don't always ride in tandem. Sometimes you have to choose. Did he want understanding or did he want God's peace? Well, John chose God's peace. What will you choose? By lacing up the sandals of peace, we choose the peace of God. And then verse 16, Paul talks about the shield of faith. The Roman shield was approximately four foot long by two and a half feet wide. And when a barrage of arrows were launched, a soldier could place the shield in the ground and crouch underneath it. It offered whole body protection. This is why Paul says, above all, taking the shield of faith. The shield was made of brass and it was covered with layers of leather. And before the battle, the soldiers would soak it in water. Thus, the wet leather extinguished the fiery darts. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know that Satan is also known for his fiery darts. 1 Peter 4 verse 12 tells us, Beloved, Do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. We can expect flurries of trials and temptations from time to time. How do you respond when Satan's darts are fired in rapid succession, when it's one thing after another? Don't try to fight off the attacks one by one. There are too many. They come too quickly. When you're hit by a flurry of fire, Grab that shield of faith and hunker down. Hide underneath and wait on God. This is what's called faith under fire. And realize the Roman shield was gangable. In other words, they connected with each other, with other shields. Linked shields with another soldier and it created more protection. And this happens spiritually when believers link up and stand together in their common faith. Our faith is gangable. Don't forget it. Believe God's word is true. Believe his promises are sure. Believe in his faithfulness and truth. Hold your faith high and Satan's fiery darts will fizzle rather than sizzle. Faith is everything. 1 John 5 verse 4 says, This is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. And then verse 17 speaks of the helmet of salvation. (coughs) Excuse me. The helmet was made of strong metal that could withstand the blow of a hammer or a battle axe. It covered the soldier's forehead and then wrapped around his cheeks. Then it extended downward in the back to protect his neck. With no helmet, he would become a casualty in seconds. Just as no football player would ever enter the game without strapping on his helmet, The same was true of a Roman soldier. And it's just as important for you and me that we strap on the helmet of salvation. 
Hey, evil thoughts are among Satan's fiery darts. Have you noticed that often a perverse thought will come out of nowhere? Pops in your brain. Where did that come from? It flashes across the screen of your mind. And when a thought enters your thinking, it's your choice to hug that thought, to entertain it, to nurture it, to dwell on it, or to reject it as quickly as it came. Martin Luther used to say that thoughts are like birds. He says you can't keep them from flying over your head, but you can keep them from nesting in your hair. True. See, not all our thoughts originate with us. Satan can interject evil ideas into our minds. He can poison our minds if we don't protect ourselves. And our protection is strapping on a helmet of salvation. Don't you think it's time that you decided to take control of your thought life? You'd never let your kids just kind of wander around the mall. Why are you letting your mind wander around in every kind of nook and cranny? Wherever it is. Cranny, yeah. Nook and cranny. The Black College Fund has a memorable motto. A mind is a terrible thing to waste. Don't waste your mind. When I put on the helmet of salvation, I'm making a commitment to think pure and godly thoughts. I'm filling my mind with Scripture. I'm fixing my focus on God and the things of God. If you fill your mind with what is good and godly, Satan will have a far more difficult time interjecting his garbage. A good helmet is essential. Notice again verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God. Notice it's not enough just to have this armor if we don't put it on. You know, we've all heard of stories of the driver who didn't buckle his seatbelt. It was there. Just didn't buckle it. Or the police officer who left behind his bulletproof vest back in the squad car and he didn't put it on. Or the cyclist who ditched his helmet for some reason. And likewise, God's armor does us no good if we don't put it on. Go to battle half-dressed, and you'll leave openings that the devil can exploit. Guard your feelings with God's truth. you got a belt. Strap it on. Guard your desires. Wear that breastplate. Choose God's peace. Strap on those sandals. Above all, have faith. Hide under your shield. And think pure thoughts. Put on that helmet. And of course, notice the one part of the body that the armor doesn't cover. It's the back. God gives us no protection for the back because retreat is not an option. James 4 verse 7 gives us the confidence. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. The only way you can lose in this spiritual battle is to run scared. If you'll be strong in the Lord, put on the whole armor of God, take a stand against the devil, then he'll have no power over you. For God wants to use you and me to win spiritual victories. Realize the armor is defensive. To this point, Paul's emphasis has been on us holding ground, not taking ground. But in verses 17 and 18, Paul lists two offensive weapons. An arsenal that we can use to go on attack. Paul speaks of the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and 
praying always, the sword and the shell, the blade and the bomb, the infantry and the artillery, the weapons of our warfare are the Bible and prayer. Hebrews 4 verse 12 tells us, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The word of God is a spiritual scalpel. You know, not a week goes by when someone doesn't ask me, Pastor Sandy, you were talking to me today. How is it that you seem to know exactly what I'm dealing with every week? Actually, what we do is we send the pastors out during the week and they hide in the bushes outside your house and they <laughs> eavesdrop in on the conversations that you're having. That's how we know. No, not really. I have no idea the specifics that are going on in your life, but God does. And he uses his word to cut to the heart of the matter. The Bible is unique. It's the only book where you read it. The author is there helping you to understand. The Bible is a supernatural book. There's power in its pages. It convicts us of sin and strengthens our faith and cleanses our soul and feeds our minds. And Satan is powerless over God's word. You remember when the devil tempted Jesus, the Lord used the word of God to drive the enemy away. 1 John 2 verse 14 describes how Christians overcome the evil one because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. Satan's schemes are brought to light. Fear is overcome. Guilt is dispelled. Lies are exposed. Guidance is delivered all through God's word. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed to the word of God. Nothing is more vital for us to know and do as the word of God. Well, the Bible is the blade, but prayer is the bomb. Prayer is the Christian's heavy artillery. See, before we confront the devil in hand-to-hand combat and even get close enough to him to use the sword of the Spirit, we first need to wear him down through prayer. Prayer is done behind enemy lines. In the safety of our home or in our church, we can drop to our knees and we can lob shells on the enemy. We can beat down strongholds. We can loosen the devil's grip on another life before we ever go into that person with a kindness or with a witness. You know, recent wars have shown the devastating effects of computer-guided smart bombs. Today, from the decks of warships, the American military can send laser-guided missiles to targets with pinpoint accuracy. But even more impressive is the accuracy and potency of prayer. For on my knees, I can go anywhere in the world and I can have an impact for God's kingdom. I can help missionaries and populate eternity. I can even bring down governments and change societies all through the power of prayer. Martin Luther once said, My prayer is more than the devil himself. So is yours. Prayer can open the window of heaven and pour out divine blessings. It's prayer that moves the hand of God. Through prayer, we can blow away a person's excuses. 
We can break down their defenses. We can strip away their spiritual blinders. We can overcome their stubbornness. William Cowper once penned, Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. Tonight before your head hits the pillow or tomorrow before your feet hit the floor, open your Bible and strengthen your faith. Then drop to your knees and change your world. Let's use the blade and the bomb. Roy Putnam writes, It is the fearful who allow the devil to hold high carnival on this planet. Satan sets up his tyranny only because he has not been challenged. As Christians, we are soldiers in God's army. Be strong in the Lord, friends. Put on the whole armor of God. Grab the blade with one hand and the bomb with the other. Then stand against the devil. Jesus has won the victory. Don't you think it's time we join the battle?